everyone. Welcome to Invisible Not Broken. I have Pam Jensen here, who I um, was amazed at how many disorders I had to look up. So really glad we were able to make this work. And thank you for being so patient with all of our technical difficulties. Not a problem. That was, that was fun. <laughs> so if you could go through, there are some that I actually had never heard of before with DISH. I think myofacial pain was one that I had only heard of with my daughter's YouTubers, or it was atypical. Oh, I'm not even going to try. I haven't had enough coffee yet to try that one. <laughs> atypical trigeminal neuralgia. Wow. Yes. I know it's a mouthful. <laughs> I, I can't do that before like at least three cups. <laughs> it took me a long time to be able to wrap my tongue around it too. It's, it's a tough one. So can you explain what these are? I mean, this is a dizzying amount of things that you're juggling. And I definitely want to go into um, how you are able to juggle. Just I'm looking at the ones that I know. And I know that the side effects from some of the painkillers or the different things that you'd probably be given would not work well with like gastroparesis and bipolar disorder, exactly. like adds in a whole nother level of where different medications are going to react weird. Um, but if you could just go through what you have first and then we can yeah. get to the, the juggling. Okay. So the list includes fibromyalgia, osteoarthritis in all of my major joints, myofascial pain, which is the connective tissue. Um, where else do we want to go? Diabetes type 2, bipolar disorder. I have hypothyroidism, which means low thyroid, so my energy levels are usually shot. Chronic fatigue syndrome, which means I have no energy to be shot in the first place. <laughs> um, DISH, which stands for diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, which basically means an overgrowth of bone from unknown sources. And I have this in my spine, so I have bone spurs, but they don't look like an actual bone spur. They look like melted candle wax. So when you look at an x-ray, it looks like candle wax is dripping down my back. Um, and it limits mobility. Um, they're not able to remove these bone spurs because they're not a normal type of spur. So um, it limits the, the ability to bend or to twist. Um, I have it mostly in the thoracic spine, so in the middle of my back but it is spreading and starting to go a little bit lower. Um, the other one that we were stumbling over is atypical trigeminal neuralgia. And what that is, it's a condition that affects the nerve that runs in the face. So I feel it under the cheekbone, in the jawbone area. When I have a flare up, I actually can feel it all the way into my esophagus. My esophagus will flare up and start to spasm. Um, and what happens in a flare-up is I'll, I'll start with a pinpoint of pain just under my cheekbone, and that pinpoint of pain will blow up to feel like brain freeze in my face, and it lasts for 12 hours. And the reason why mine is called atypical neuralgia is because it lasts for the period of time that it does. In a regular trigeminal neuralgia, you get sharp, very, very quick spasms of pain pain. But mine is never a quick spasm. It's a constant, never-ending pain, and they always time out at 12 hours. There's, there's no getting around that period of time. I can go to the emergency room, but painkillers do nothing. There's this couple of different drugs that they can try, but generally speaking, I don't bother because I know that it's not going to work, and I'm just going to have to power through it. So... Um, and then gastroparesis, which is digestive disorder, which adds to everything else. So there's a whole lot of things that are going on in my body of mostly unknown 
origin. We don't know why my body reacts the way it does. Autoimmune disorders never seem to have a real reason behind them for why they happen. Um, but my body is just in rebellion and it's been this way for a very long time. I think I first had chronic pain back when I was a teenager. When I was 15, I first started feeling the osteoarthritis and the fibromyalgia. But 2004, I had a stomach surgery that resulted in nerve damage, and that kicked off a fibro flare that has never gone away. I've always had fibro pain from that time period. I had a multitude of different surgeries after that, and every time I had a surgery, it was adding to the flare that I currently had. So my body has just been assaulted by one flare after another, and they've just never gone away. They just get worse over time. There's so much to unpack there. I know, there's a lot. The one of the things that always strikes me is that um, it's sort of the dirty little secret about chronic illness is that you know, like people talk about like, well, what there's like this big emergency, then there's no help. And it's like, for a lot of us with chronic illness, we're very used to, there's no help. Like you can't even like with the, oh my God, things that people would rush to a hospital for a lot of us are like, yeah, there's, there's not a lot that they're going to be able to do. And so like, exactly. yeah, the unimaginable pain, we're pretty used to the, um, there's nothing we can do for you sort of level, but you're in Canada. Is that right? You're over. I am in Canada. Yes. I live in Langford, BC, which is on Vancouver Island, just off the coast of BC. So jealous. I would love to go to Vancouver. Yeah. That is a gorgeous, gorgeous island. And yeah, so jealous of your healthcare. Yeah. Uh, yes, and our healthcare is wonderful, I have to admit. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely jealous of that. We're, <laughs> we're on the same coastline, but we have very different realities about, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> about medication. Um, and so that is a good question. Um, how does your, your healthcare system handle chronic illness? That's a big, like we're here um, in the middle of an election year and I, I promise everyone I'm not getting political here. I just actually have a genuine question, but we're all talking right now about how, um, how healthcare is going to work for us all. And the big point against the socialized medicine is yes, but the chronic illness and the disability doesn't mm-hmm. get help over there and people are almost dying waiting for an appointment. What's your experience with all this, with your chronic illness? Well, I've been living with chronic illness for such a long time, so I've seen a lot of different changes happen over the years and everything. Now, I'm in a situation where I'm very fortunate. Um, I've been on disability since 2009. I had to leave my job at that time. Um, Was physically unable to manage the work any longer and mentally was unable to manage the work. I used to work as an administrative specialist, and I'm also a certified event planner. And I would, I know, (laughs) I would have so bad that I would be in the middle of a conversation and would completely lose my train of thought, would have no idea what I was just talking about. And I used to be renowned for never having to carry a notebook with me. Everything was always up in my head and I knew everything that was going on and never a problem. And when I started noticing problems and stuff, um, it just kind of became a a bit of a a landslide and went from a couple of pebbles falling down the path to a whole mountain slide. Um, Happened very quickly. And with the physical issues that I was experiencing with uh, pain in my hips and my legs and my lower back in particular, walking became hugely difficult. Um, I, I end up now, I use a cane and a walker to get around in a wheelchair if I'm going to be in longer distances. So I was lucky that when I went on disability from work, um, my work insurance has 
covered part of my disability. So I still get payments from work for being on disability long term. And I also have um, income coming in through our government, um, through our Canadian Pension Plan Disability Fund. So financially, I was not hit because it's all non-taxable. So I wasn't hit. Oh, just a real quick aside. In the United States, we are taxed on our disability. Exactly. Just, I just want to throw that out there in case someone, you know, we have an international audience. I just wanted to just show that highlight there. Yes. So your disability is not taxed. Wow. Isn't it? that you're going to be taxed on that income. So for me, um, it gave us the opportunity that I could leave my job with the comfort of knowing that we were still going to be okay financially. And I worry for my friends who are in the States who are in these types of situations because they don't have that same benefit. And we and need health insurance. If we don't have our 40-hour-a-week job from a large corporation that has to give us health insurance, we lose our health insurance if we exactly. don't. Exactly. Exactly. Now, like I say, I've been on disability for 10 years now. I only worked for the company that I was working for for just over two years. Oh, wow. So I've been on disability longer than I even worked for the company. Which, you know, it, it's mind-boggling when you think of it. I still get my employee discount from the company. So I'm able to go and shop at our retail stores at my employee discount 10 years later. And it's, to be clear, this company has not gone out of business with these humane measures, right? The company no, did not exactly. fold because they, yeah. That's exactly. why the argument here is like the companies could never afford it. I'm like, you're paying your CEO $4 billion a year, billion, not million. Yes, like the they can afford it. Definitely afford it. And, and like I say, I worry for my friends who are in the States because they don't have the same security net that I've been able to, to take benefit of. So, you know, it, uh, it, it becomes actually a bit of a bone of contention. I don't talk about it a lot with my friends in the States because I don't want to upset them with the disparities between what I'm able to have and what they are not able to have. I think it's, it's just kind of sad the way the U.S. treats people with chronic pain. So I've seen disability change in a lot of ways. From an actual healthcare provider point of view, um, I've had excellent doctors all the way through. Um, I've never had a doctor disbelieve me, which wow. is a rarity. In this. Give me a moment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Let me, let me repeat that. I've never had a doctor disagree with me or disbelieve me when it comes to my chronic pain. And I think part of it is because I am educated about my pain. I'm outspoken about my pain. I don't have a problem speaking up to authorities and saying, mm. you're not listening to me. I'm going to reiterate what I'm telling you so you can understand it better. And I think this is a big issue for a lot of people. We need to be able to stand up for ourselves and say, you need to hear what I am saying to you and not let it go. That's, that is a, a skill that I think a lot of us are still working on. It's, yeah. uh, that's probably one of the hardest things. Um, I know for myself, I, I get um, white coat anxiety where yes. like, someone with a white coat and a stethoscope comes in and like my courage drops like 10 points. So that's, yeah, that's I, I know that really happens tough. to a lot of people. 
Yeah. I think one of the reasons it doesn't bother me, um, I do a lot of volunteer work and I know we're going to talk about that. Um, one of the committees that I sit on, I am the lone patient partner. I'm the lone patient representative on this committee and I am surrounded by top level government health authorities and top level surgeons and doctors. And I have to hold my own in this committee. I need to be able to stand up and speak and represent people with chronic illness and not be afraid of the titles and the white coats that they wear and, and all of that. And that gives a lot of courage to my everyday life where I can approach doctors who are in my life and not be afraid of them. I can see beyond the white coat and I know that I have the ability to stand up to them and say what's on my mind. And it is a skill. It is something that takes time to learn. But I got to the You got to the point. Actions for everyone. Mm -hmm. So as a, um, as a ambassador for all the white coats, what have you learned from being in the room with, with healthcare professionals and with, um, the words are escaping me, but like people are making policy. Yeah, you know, basically the main thing that I've learned is that they're human just like me. You know, you, you need to go into those kinds of situations with committee meetings and stuff, recognizing that behind their white coats and their government title. Yeah, so um, I've learned that despite the white coats and despite the government titles, um, they're people just like me. And so I treat them that way. I don't feel like I need to, you know, be impressed or awed by their titles and all of that. They have kids, they have pets, they have problems, they have, you know, issues they deal with in their life just like I do. And because I know I'm going to live with chronic illness for the rest of my life, it became a matter of necessity of being able to speak up for myself and hold my own in these committee meetings and stuff because I am representing people who are chronically ill and I want to do a good job. I want to do the most fair and compassionate um, advocating that I can possibly do. So when I'm in the, these various committee meetings and I sit on four different committees right now, all healthcare related, um, when I'm representing the patient, I want to do my very best job possible. And so I can't allow myself to be afraid of the people who are sitting in the room. Um, it's not fair to me. It's not fair to the people I represent if I can't speak up and ask the hard questions or defend the status of chronic pain or chronic fatigue. Um, if I have physicians in the room who don't necessarily believe in fibromyalgia, for example, it's my responsibility to convince them that this is very real and I'm a representative of that because I have fibro. And this is why you need to understand what it's like for people who live with fibro and help to change their minds about it so they can see what fibro actually looks like. You know, invisible illness is a challenge because it's invisible. So if you can't see something, a lot of doctors use fibro as a throwaway diagnosis. If they can't find an answer for what your problem is, it's easy to say, well, it must be fibro. And what do you do to treat fibro? Well, there's not a lot of options. There are certain medications you can try, and you can try mindful meditation and breathing techniques and biofeedback and all these other things, but it doesn't go away. So 
you know, you need to be able to show people that even though you can't see this particular condition, it exists, it's real, and it's painful. So, you know, you, you need to be able to stand up for yourself when you're advocating for others. And I'm, I'm very, very capable of standing up. I've, I've never once had to back down from anybody. You know, I, I won't allow myself to back down from people. And with your um, advocacy for invisible disorders, I, are you also advocating in the mental health field as well? Is that's I do, yes, because I have bipolar disorders, so um, I, I tend to not advocate as much for that um, because chronic pain is more predominant in my life than my bipolar. I'm on medication, I've been stable for a number of years now, so because I'm not having episodes of manic and depression, um, I tend to not think about it as often, but my chronic pain is always there. So it's always at the forefront of my life. So I tend to put more of a spotlight on my volunteer work and my advocacy work on the invisible illnesses and the pain illnesses rather than the bipolar. Um, and part of it too is I don't have enough time to advocate for everything that's going on in my body. If I like was picking and choosing certain health issues that I live with, I have so many different health issues I would not be able to do justice to everything. So, you know, chronic pain and chronic fatigue are, are the two major areas that I focus on the most with my blog, with my, um, with my volunteer work, um, and, and only because there's only so much time that I have to give. So I have to be strategic on, on how I'm managing that time. And as you know, pacing is everything when it comes to having a chronic illness. So, you know, I, I have to be mindful of the pacing that's involved with what I do. I have been accused of lighting both ends of the candle and trying to light the middle. Um, pacing mm -hmm. my yes. best skill. I do try better. Um, how, how would you, as you seem to actually have pacing down pretty well, um, how, how would you recommend someone handle multiple conditions like do you have like a doctor who's the quarterback i hate to use a sports analogy but it's the best one i can come up with on my yeah. my brain do you have like one doctor who knows everything you have and then tries to make sure that no medicines interact badly or no protocols are going to damage something else yeah i do my family physician is my main doctor um and then i have my specialists that i work with for um orthopedic issues for gastroenterology um, for mental health. So they're all kind of subsets of, of my health care. But my family doctor is my primary doctor, and they oversee um, the abundance of my care. I see my doctor every month um, for a checkup, and partly because of my diabetes, I go in every month and have a well checkup done, you know, to make sure that I'm not losing sensation in my feet. Um, things like that. I get my medication done every month, so I'm always getting my refills done on a monthly basis. I'm on opioid medication as well as some other drugs, so we do it on a month-by-month -month basis. And then they get reports from the specialists when I go and see the specialists for various things. So the neurosurgeon or, you know, the gastroenterologist or the orthopedic specialist. Um, and they make sure that all medications are run through my family doctor. I don't get prescriptions from any of the others. They forward the information on to the family doctor, and the family doctor oversees all my prescriptions as well. And so you don't, 
I'm just curious because I'm with my dislocations, I'm on heavy opioids and the hoops that I have to jump through are, are pretty intense. Do you guys have that same problem over where you are? There's been a lot of crackdown on the usage of opioid medications. Um, the physicians, um, College of Physicians and Surgeons has come down on family doctors in Canada trying to get them to um, reduce the number of patients that are taking opioid medication. My doctor and I uh, work well together. Um, I have actually weaned off of uh, the heavier dosages of opioid medication that I was on, so I'm down to a certain level now um, that my doctor and I are comfortable with. And so I have no problems you know, on a monthly basis going in and getting my medication. There's no arguments, there's no fuss. Um, it's not always that easy. And I know a lot of people have had doctors who've cut them off and said, I can't prescribe for you any longer. We have a doctor shortage in Canada. Mm. Um, so in, in BC, where I live, there's a very high percentage of people who don't have a family doctor that they can go to. It's not like down in the States where you can go and see any doctor anytime sort of thing. We have this shortage and so a lot of people end up going to walk-in clinics for their health care because they don't have one specific doctor that they can go and see and that makes writing opioid prescriptions even more difficult because you're never guaranteed you're going to see the same doctor and so that doctor doesn't necessarily have a personal history with you which makes whipping out the prescription pad really really challenging so we do have issues here, and, and that is one of the areas that I envy medical care in the U.S., because it is so much easier for you to go see a doctor, see a specialist, um, you know, and, and get the treatment that you require. It's much more limited here, and we have wait lists for everything, like, you know, when it comes to surgical options or for tests and things. It takes time. There are wait lists that we have to go through before we can have certain procedures done. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of issues with, with healthcare in that regard. Um, but I've been, like I say, very lucky in that I have a family doctor and I've had one on a regular basis for years now. I've never had to worry about not having medical care. So, um, dealing with the prescriptions and stuff because she knows me. She knows my history. We've been together for a long time. Um, she knows that I don't abuse medication. I get all my medication filled at the same pharmacy, so there's no crossover pharmacies or anything like that. And those are all requirements that um, the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons has cracked down on to make sure that the opioid crisis doesn't become even more of a crisis. So for you, what does uh, pacing look like for how you pace through a day? Pacing for me is, is really a matter of building in rest breaks into my day and into my, my weekly activities. Um, one of the committee meetings that I attend uh, takes place in Vancouver, so I have to fly in for these meetings. Um, most fly? of them, yeah, I fly oh, wow. in. Um, where I live on Vancouver Island, I'm a 30-minute flight from Vancouver, so I hop a little plane and fly across the pond wow. into Vancouver. Um, they pay for, for all my, my travel expenses and everything because they want these meetings to be in person. Um, a lot of my meetings take place online through WebEx, which is really helpful so I don't have to travel 
one of the committees I sit on, we meet at the hospital every two months. So I go into the hospital, into their committee room, and I meet with them there. So I make sure for pacing that I allow myself the day before a meeting and the day after a meeting to do nothing. It's purely rest time for me. So I build up the energy that I need to get through the meeting, and then I have a day off to recuperate the energy that I've expended in the meeting. Um, my day-to-day -day basis, when I'm not doing committee meetings and things like that, I still build in rest periods um, because I do a lot of blogging, and that takes up a lot of mental energy as well. So... Um, I like to make sure that I'm giving myself time to just do nothing. And, and really, that's exactly what pacing looks like for me. I put my feet up in my recliner. I work out of my recliner. Uh, my laptop is my lifeline. Um, so I'm set up with a laptop desk in my recliner. Everything's right at hand. And um, when I'm not physically doing something, so I'm not physically blogging or online in a meeting or, you know, doing training or whatever, um, I usually just sit back, close my eyes, do some mindful meditation and just do some breathing exercises and rest. And I have a nap every day. <laughs> that sounds lovely. It is lovely. Um, you know, one of the joys, my, my kids are grown and gone. I've got grandchildren um, who are grown. I don't have obligations of having small children to deal with. Um, and I really haven't. Um, my kids were always at an older age when I really became incapacitated. And I've been an empty nester for so many years that I haven't had to worry about childcare or dealing with small children, which has been a real blessing because I don't know how people manage that with chronic illness. Um, I'm sure you could probably tell me a whole lot about how that works. But I can tell you a lot about how it doesn't work yeah. <laughs> um, and how it works also. I, I'm sorry, that was a pithy little, little answer there, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's beautiful and messy. <laughs> yeah, which, which I think life really is in general, but when you've got kids in the mix, it just makes it so much more so. I mean, you know, I raised my kids as pretty much a single parent uh, from the time that my daughter was born. Um, and then I was married for a period of time, but he really wasn't involved with the kids. So I've really single parented for most of my kids' lives until my now husband came into our life uh, when my kids were 11 and 12. And he did not come into our life as a parent, but he is a go-to parent now. Um, and I find it especially funny now that my kids are older that they will often talk to him before they'll talk to me when there's something going on in their lives, which I think is fantastic. So he's, he's earned his position as dad. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, my, um, my current husband is, um, like he's just so involved. Like he's, he and my son are like thick as thieves. Sometimes I'm like, oh, did I just like make sure that the two people who would connect the hardest are like in each other's yeah. lives? Like, it's so wonderful to see like how families can come about. And even if it's a little, um, unplanned, how it all comes about, yeah. it's, it's yeah. beautiful and messy, right? Like, yeah. How old is your son? He just turned 18. Oh, I'm, wow. I'm, I'm in shock still about that. I, I'm not really ready. I'm at a weird age where all of my friends are having their first. 
Yes. And it's like this very strange thing where I'm like surrounded by my friends, toddlers and babies running around. And I'm like, oh, I became a grandmother when most of my friends were having their first children. I was going to say, you do not um, appear to be what I would um, <laughs> at all. I'm, but th- to be fair, my mom, uh, she, everyone thinks that my daughter is hers when they go out. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, good genetics, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, so but getting- I'm, I'm the first to admit, I had my kids young. My daughter had her kids young. My, my mom had kids young. Her mom had kids young. We all had our kids under the age of 18. Oh, so, wow. Okay. So yeah, yeah you were much, yeah. Yeah, it goes back, you know, through the generations for, I think, six generations where we all had them under the age of 18. Um, You know, so yeah, I mean, I've been blessed that I've been able to live my older years without having to worry about childcare and younger children and, you know, all of that. So, but uh, I I miss having younger grandchildren because my grandchildren are all grown up. They're almost 20, 18 and almost 14 now. So there's no more babies in my family. I keep telling my son, it's up to him to produce a new baby because my daughter is done. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I hear that. I, yeah, my, I'm the, the only one. So I'm like, sorry, this is, this is it. I'm, yeah. I'm peace out. I cannot do that again. But yeah, they're lovely. Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're right twice. They're perfect. I, I can't. Um, Sorry, uh, we're almost at time. So I really want to make sure that we talked about your volunteer work because, and um, by the way, please head over to our show notes because um, the uh, blog is definitely going to be at Pam's blog will be first button you can hit. Um, But what is, what are you volunteering with? What are the the things? So the stuff that I volunteer with, one of them is a surgical quality improvement group. So we are putting measures together that will help surgeons to improve the quality that they are providing to their um, patients. Wow. Yeah. One, <laughs> Needed. Of groups, one of the groups I belong to is a laboratory quality control group. So we oversee all of the laboratories on Vancouver Island for quality control. Um, a third group that I belong to is called a clinical resource group, and it's for the BC Emergency Physicians Network. And what they do and what this clinical group does, I'm the project lead for updating all of the patient information sheets that you're handed out in the emergency room when you're being discharged. All of the sheets that are currently being handed out had never been looked at by a patient before. And when I discovered this, when I first became part of this clinical group, I was like, well, maybe I could offer some insight into that by going through these documents and offering a patient perspective. And from that single request, we've grown to have myself and a partner who do this with uh, the information sheets. And we've also held group sessions where we've brought together up to 12 people who in a group go through these sheets in partners to get through them all because there's about 300 information sheets that all need to be updated. And we're actually heading to Prince George at the end of this month to go and do a small group session up in Prince George just to get patient involvement from a smaller community group. So it's been really, really interesting to see the input that patients have on the sheets that they're being given. Um, you know, what makes sense to them? How things are written? Does it, does it read properly? Does it have the right information? Does it make sense to a patient that this is what they do in case of an emergency? And we've revamped these sheets to just become really valuable pieces of information now. It was a huge project and one I'm particularly proud of. 
and I don't know you and I'm proud of you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> that's, that's one of those things that would actually save lives. Like, you know, we yeah. always want to like have an impact, but that right there would save lives. It and actually does save lives. Yeah. And then the last group that I belong to, because I like the BC Emergency Physician Network so much, I'm now sitting on their management committee as well. I just joined their management committee. So I'm looking forward to having more input into what this group does. And basically what their work is, is they connect all of the, the physicians in emergency rooms throughout BC. So any physician in any town in British Columbia can get real-time help with a problem. So if they encounter a patient, let's say in a small town in northern BC, and they encounter a situation or a health concern that they've not really dealt with before, they can real-time connect with a physician in an emergency room elsewhere in BC to get one-on-one -on -one information about that patient's condition and ways to help that patient. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I just, like, the, I, I can just see how this, this changes everything and everyone's it really like, does. So if someone's listening to this and they're like, I want to start this in my area, my country, my state, do you have any, like, any resources that you can send me for, to put in show notes or? Um, a lot of what I do is through a volunteer group called the Patient Voices Network that puts together patients and healthcare organizations that are looking for patient representation. Um, and that's how I got together with the physician, emergency physicians network was through this volunteer group. Um, the other volunteering that I do, I'm in training right now to become a health counselor for people with chronic pain on the phone. So that's through an organization here in BC called painbc.com. And what I'll be doing is actually learning all about chronic pain, more than I know already. You have um, empirical evidence. <laughs> ways to manage it, ways to handle it, ways that best help patients. And then I'll be paired up with a patient where for 12 weeks on a once a week basis, I will be in phone contact for an hour with this patient, helping them with whatever issues they're dealing with, with chronic pain. So what I say to people is if you have a passion for volunteering and you have a passion for healthcare, start with the healthcare organizations that touch your heart the most, the Diabetes Association, the Heart Association, the Kidney Association, wherever your passion is, in healthcare, start with your national organization and find out how you can volunteer. Contact your local hospitals and ask them if they use patient advocates, and if they don't, why not? And how can you <laughs> how can you get something happening where the hospitals will bring you on board as a patient advocate in the various projects that they are working on? It's self-initiative. You need to take the initiative and follow the pas the path of passion that you're most interested in. Well, if you could send me, um, so I can put in show notes, the, the um, volunteer organizations you're part of so that I, I can link that up. And also your blog, I would love to be able to link to your blog. So Absolutely. PamelaJesson.com is my blog. It's pretty simple. Um, and I post every four or five days all about chronic illness, um, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, invisible illness. Um, I do a lot of guest posting. I'm actually, for the month of October, I'm featuring um, guests throughout the month for something I call Interview October. 
um, and getting perspective on various health conditions from all sorts of people. So uh, I do this annually. This will be my second year of doing it in October and I do it in April as well. So I do it twice a year. And I get such excellent feedback from people who learn more about these various health conditions that they've never heard of before, like DISH or like a typical trigeminal neuralgia, things like that. And so my, my aim with my blog is to educate and empower. Those are some absolutely amazing goals, and it seems to be right in line with all of all of your work in volunteering and yes, very much. all of that work you've done in volunteering. I think there's a lot of people in Canada who will have a different outcome because of what you're, you're working on. Thank you. I appreciate that. That's really what I'm aiming for. I, I want to know that I've made a difference. And when I get comments on various blog posts and stuff, I can see that that's happening. And to me, that is the main reason why I do this, so that other people can have a better quality of life. Well, thank you so much. And that is our time. So thank you for coming on, Pam. I really appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate that too. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in. And um, we don't advertise. So the new countries that are coming in to listen, that's all because you guys are sharing. So thank you so much for that. The kindest thing you can still do if you love the podcast is to go to Apple Podcasts, say some things, leave some stars. We always appreciate that. And until next week, be kind, be gentle, and be a badass.